Okay, please turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. I will be reading 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful in pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Holy Father, we once again beg of you pour out grace, the power of grace upon all of us as men and as women. May the grace that you have shown in this text over the last two weeks to women and to wives, which has become evident, continue this morning in freedom through your Son, in your Son, and to demonstrating the glory of your Son as husband to the bride, the church, we pray. Amen. This is part three of men and women, husbands and wives, roles in marriage. And as we have seen the last two weeks, this tends to be a fairly controversial issue in the church world. Okay. But, why? I'm a pastor. Therefore, I think first and foremost, I owe it to the best of any grace of God to be faithful. Which means that if this text that we've run into now as we work our way through First Peter is to be taken seriously, then the issue cannot be avoided. Kind of like, you know, dealt with lightly. Especially as we have seen last week, the importance of it in the life of the church. As Paul says, marriage exists in Ephesians chapter 5. Because first and foremost, God purposed creation and salvation through His Son Jesus. Therefore, marriage, in order to picture how Christ loves the church and how the church is happily submitted to Christ. So this issue of men and women and husbands and wives, it is a, an extremely important issue for two main reasons from my perspective. First, is because I am committed to allowing the Bible, first and foremost, not culture, dictate truth. My life, 
My purpose for existence rests on God's revelation. This book. That, that leads to the second thing, or the first, or that statement doesn't mean much, which means, especially as a pastor, it rests on the honesty in which I deal with the words in this book. As a truth broker to you. The second reason why this is a crucial issue in our time is because of the culture that we live in. I mean in two senses. The culture at large, outside of the church, in our western civilization, and the culture within the church. First, the culture of western civilization and in America that we live in is so radically different today from this text. And I don't just mean different from 2,000 years ago. The culture is so radically different on this issue from 50 years ago. My parents' generation. There has been such a radical shift in our culture in the western world that is tending toward what we call relativism. Which essentially means truth is changing. Reality is changing because there's no such thing as truth that exists apart from what we create as human beings individually, as families, or as culture at large. And, and that relativism shows its face in what we call today political correctness. And attached to all this genre is what we call, and I, I want to... I I'm going to modify the word on purpose. Radical feminism. Because there's a, the reason I do that, there is a lot that needed to happen when it came to the treatment of women in society. Sin, as we saw last week, has broken all of this. It has broken masculinity. It has broken femininity. And... Never should women, as many cultures have done, dehumanize them. Jesus came to liberate women. But I mean radical feminism, which has just taken root especially over the last 40 years. Since then there has been tons of books and literature and university courses and even university departments that exist in order, not merely for undoing injustice towards women, but to proclaim this doctrine that there is no difference between men and women in their natures. And it's everywhere. An official statement from one liberal arts college. Quote, To treat men and women as if they were different by nature is unjust discrimination. So for me, to run in front of the lady who's five feet in front of me to grab the door and to open it, some women who have been indoctrinated with that type of thinking will be offended. Most women who have not been indoctrinated because of their femininity will say thank you. But we live in this culture. 
all around us is the doctrine that essentially states what every culture throughout every generation in human history has assumed about the difference between male and female is they were darkened. We are the enlightened generation. We know better now. That's all a myth. It was only humanly, culturally produced and generated because we had ideas of what men and women were and we forced it on them and that's why they end up being the way they are. So, if you give to your little girls dolls and playhouses, they become the homemaker. You give to your boys guns and swords, they fight your battles. And then you have children... And if you're blessed enough to have a few of different sexes, that theory goes out the door. But that's the doctrine that's all around us. Now, within the church, now, within the conservative church, within the evangelical church world, this feminism has been increasing. Let me just, I want to define something because some of you are not sure how I use the term. When I say evangelical, what I mean is, do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Do you believe that the Scripture is the inerrant, infallible truth of God's Word? Then you're an evangelical in the way that I'm using it. You can be Pentecostal, charismatic, anti-charismatic, etc. Okay? You're, you're within that room, as opposed to many mainline denominations that literally they do not believe in the atonement of Christ. They do not believe that Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, etc. But you believe that. That makes you an evangelical in the larger term. I, I mean the feminism that, that is creeping in more and more, to give you a, for instance, of a fellow evangelical whom we love and care about, whom we for years have homeschooled with in the same homeschool academy. She's an evangelical. She will pick her churches based upon evangelical feminism. Not what you've been hearing in this church for the last three weeks. Okay, so real brothers and sisters who love the Lord is what I'm talking about. That more and more there are Christians who oppose the idea of unique roles for men in the family and in the church. Or for women in the family or in the church. They say that masculinity and femininity are irrelevant for leadership in your family or in the church. Most of my seminary professors were of this ilk. They were evangelical feminist. Or the term I introduced a few weeks ago. They were egalitarians. Let me just give you a taste of some fellow Christians evangelicals on where they're coming from and this kind of statements they'll make on this issue. Gretchen Gabeline Hall in her book Equal to Serve writes Biblical feminists lovingly ask the Christian community to abandon artificial role playing and to be sex-blind in assessing each individual's qualifications for ministry. There's something that's a little unfair there. I don't think what I've been saying has been artificial. It would be appropriate to address the issue and say, 
your interpretation of Scripture is wrong. But to play that word game, artificial role-playing, don't, don't do that backwards to other people that you disagree with. It's just not helpful. Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen, in her book, Gender and Grace, writes, in talking about saying that the Bible's, quote, main thrust is toward leveling, not the maintenance of birth, birth status difference. By that means, male and femaleness, which makes them different. Look, the closest person to me in the world is, is my wife. And by nature, I have much more in common with some jungle guy in the Amazon in the 1400s than I do with my wife. Because I'm a man. And he's a man. She's a woman. It's amazing how marriage is an opportunity for human beings to grow. It's easy to be around your own sex in many ways. And it's really fun to be around the other sex, honey. Don't get me wrong. James Dobson, I think he's dead on when he wrote, Feminist resistance to making manhood and womanhood significant in behavior and role determination is partner to some of the most painful social and spiritual issues of our day. I just think he's dead on. But again, this is everywhere. I remember... Uh, registering for one of the quarters in seminary and one of my fellow students, she was an evangelical feminist, became very clear. She's doing a survey, probably writing a paper on it, and she wanted to know. She asked all those married people, yes, I had just gotten married, and did your wife take your name? I knew what, where she's coming from. Yes, she did. Well, why? And my basic answer is because she wants to. She loves coming under the authority of me. Her husband, a man, is her protector. It's, and so for her to take my name means something to her. Okay. I, she did not like that answer. <laughs> now, what I've attempted to do the last two weeks, and if you haven't heard them, you would do yourself a service to hear them because... This is part three, and there will be part four, and it's all connected. So I've attempted to show the last two weeks that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 6 in particular, and in the Bible, especially Genesis and the creation account of humanity as male and female, and in Ephesians, in general, is that God created humanity as male and female with a leadership role in the marriage of the husband and the complementary, beautiful, fitting role of the wife. And that all of that was before the fall. It wasn't created by the fall. Sin has messed it up ever since and we're fighting to undo that to one degree or another in our marriages today. These role distinctions 
Here's the reality. Yes. Most of human history lived in what we call patriarchal societies. Most meaning where sin, nature, from whether it's in a jungle or to historic Western civilization, has perverted masculinity, perverted femininity, sinfully subjugated women. This is the patriarchalism. Patriot comes from father, man. It's a man's world, right? Women. And so much of that's true. It was horrible. And it is true that when God gave His revelation through Moses and then since Moses on down through, it was in the context of patriarchal systems. Admit it, yes. But, what God was speaking truth about is that that does not undo the reality of the difference between masculinity and femininity. They are facts of creation. That's what we saw over the last two weeks. This is a huge issue. Most of you know there's issues in the, in the church. I tend to be, I said it to, I think, Bob last week. I don't know how I use that term. I'm like an evangelical hippie. Not in the sense of drop out, but, but, but in the sense of where, hey, 1960s, all the wisdom of the past, forget it. You know, we're just going to start all new. I'm that way about a lot of Christian culture stuff. You know, I'm the type of guy I wouldn't even know about something, but then you say your kids ought not play with those cards. I'll go out and buy them tomorrow because I hate legalism so much. Now, there are all the issues that you cannot find directly central to Scripture. I just tend to tell me not to do it. I'm going to do it. Just because I hate legalism. Legalism doesn't mean you don't have law or, or truth. Legalism means you, you have central things that aren't central to the Bible that you are calling your Christianity to the extent you will judge other Christians for not following your little path. Well, then why am I doing this? Why not just get rid of this femininity, masculinity, roles in marriage? That would be really smart in your day and age, Joe. Because it's central. I can't avoid it on the pages of Scripture and it seems so right. It's a huge issue. I just want to, on that book table, here is like the magnum opus of of this issue from a complementarian, which I am. Differences between masculinity and femininity. They complement one another. Women have strengths that men don't have. Men have strengths that women don't have, etc. Uh, I think there's a few left over there. Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. A book by Susan Hunt by Design. Trish, have you read this? You're reading it? Is it, is it good? Okay, it's really good. Okay. All right, Leadership for Women in the Church by Susan Hunt and Peggy Hutchinson and a book written years ago by Elizabeth Elliot, Let Me Be a Woman. Take, take advantage of books that will be on that back table. Now, what we have seen, if you're back there in 1 Peter chapter 3, is Peter calls wives, let's not miss this, to be deeply, powerfully, spiritually 
strong. Even to wives who have unbelieving, non-Christian husbands. Which means, even to wives who have husbands who do not know how to be a godly leader. Now, within our Christian culture, I just gave you some examples of women writing books. We tend to hear from women about the beauty of femininity, the beauty of submission, who have Christ-centered husbands. Elizabeth Elliot, of course, her first husband was killed and became famous for it on the mission field. Jim Elliot. And subsequently, the husband, the second husband, she married godly husband. Or you listen to a strong spiritual woman like Shirley Dobson. She heads up the National Day of Prayer. But she's married to Jim Dobson. Okay, or some of you may read from Carol, Carolyn Mahaney's book over there and encourage you to be submissive. But she's got a godly, Christ-pursuing husband. And that's good. Take advantage of that. But the Bible is really realistic. Some women, well, over the centuries, millions of women are not going to have born-again, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled men as husbands, and they're called to submit. See, as the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit go out into the world, it does not always convert husband and wife in marriage together. In Luke chapter 12, verses 51-52, to Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. And our text in 1 Peter explicitly assumes that many wives are saved and now divided because their husband is in that other group. And many times in history shows that the husband could be a professing Christian who lives as an unbeliever because he's probably not converted. You've got the differing soils Jesus talks about when the Gospel goes out and it produces people that gather in the physical, local church. So, this is the reality. But the command, and Peter knows that, it's the context to women, is cultivate a heart of submission to your husband. A heart issue. Which will mean how it works out practically in actual actions and actual obedience may be differing in differing dynamics within a marriage. The issue of submission is first 
and foremost, that inner, beautiful quality. The gentle, feminine, quiet. It doesn't mean shuts up. Just not bickering and warring and nagging spirit. Which sin is broken women. And just like it's broken men in our areas. Cultivate it. But so in light of that then, this is what I'm going to do this morning. I want to talk about what submission does not mean. And then at the end again, we just come back. What is the core of submission? And close. Okay? When he says women, wives, submit to your own husband. Submission does not mean agreeing with your husband in everything he thinks or says. It can't mean that if we take this scripture seriously. Because verse 1 is clear. The woman is a believer. Her husband may not be. So think about it. He's got one set of ideas about the ultimate meaning of life, existence, and she has a different one by definition. And yet, in that context, Peter tells these Christian wives, be submissive to your own husband. Therefore, he is assuming, isn't he, that she is not going to take his view of God. That make sense? All right, therefore, logically, it follows that submission cannot mean submit to everything that your husband thinks because he thinks it, or everything he may tell you to think. So, connected to that means submission is not giving up for women. It's not giving up your independent thought or your independent decision-making, your will. Because this woman, as we see here, who has an unbelieving husband, she heard the Gospel. She has thought about it. The truth claims of Jesus, His sacrificial death, the proclamation that He was raised, she weighed that evidence in her mind, in her will, in her heart, gravitated that just seems to really be true, and she chose Jesus. Her husband has also heard the Gospel. He's thought about it, and he remains, at this point, an unbeliever. He has not chosen Jesus. Peter assumes this is the situation. Therefore, submission cannot mean you don't have independent thought and choice and willing. Okay? And not only that, Peter is writing this to women. And many of these women, as we see in our text, have unbelieving husbands. Therefore, when they go to their church meetings and services and homes, and we got a letter from Peter now, and the elders are going to stand up and publicly read it, and the women are being addressed by the Apostle Peter, their husband is not there. And Peter has no problem with that. He, he didn't say, oh, you women have to leave because I've I got to talk to your unbelieving husbands to whether I should influence you with truth here. No. 
He speaks directly to the women, knowing that without their husband, they will make independent choices to hear the truth of the Word and obey. Submission does not mean that a wife should not try to influence or to change her husband. The whole point of this text, mainly, is for many of these Christian women, with unbelieving husband, Peter's point is, this is how you change him. Isn't it? Start with verse 1 again. Likewise, wives, be subject or in submission to your own husbands, so that, if some do not obey the word, they're unbelievers, so that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. His whole purpose is, here's a way to maybe win your husband to the Lord, to change him in the most profound way possible. This is, I just want to emphasize this. The history of a lot of the church world who would love everything I'm saying so far here have abused what I'm saying. Subjugated wives. They have made statements about what submission is to their wives or pastors have helped them do it. And it's not where the wife just can't have independent thought. Can't be taught outside of Him. Absolutely domineering and controlling husbands thinking they're being biblical in their leadership. And they're not. If we take this text seriously, in its context, then you can't say, well, wives are to submit. And therefore, women, you're never to try to influence, change your husband. This text says your submission to your husband, who is an unbeliever, is a strategy to change him. Submission, it does not mean putting your husband's will above the will of Christ, nor on an equal plane with the will of Christ. The husband never takes the place of Jesus in his will over you. The whole context of chapter 3, remember, He goes back to chapter 2 is where it starts when he starts to use the word submission in varying, differing human relationships of authority and submission. And all the way through, there's this assumption. He's never telling Christian people to submit to those differing institutions like to the civil government and its laws, a slave to his or her master, or an employee to an employer, and now wife to husband, there's this assumption that you never obey or submit if they are telling you to do something that is directly contrary to your ultimately true master's will, who is Jesus. See, in this context, the women with unbelieving husbands, and look, that 
with believing husbands. It's true for my wife. And as a believer who sins, is not to follow me in sin. This woman is, these women are not to follow their husbands in the, the, the lifestyle, the pathway of sin in which he is headed right now. Which means essentially this, all submission to civil government, to your employer, and wives to husbands is relativized by Jesus as your ultimate master. This model that there's God up here and then the husband and then right below the husband is the wife which means the husband's in between her and Christ or God. It's not biblical. And this text is so clear. She has straightforward access. Hoping God, women, especially you who have unbelievers, you directly through Christ have no other mediator. Go to Him, God, for the sake of your husband. Think about the example Peter gives in our text. He uses Sarah. And this came up in, in, in one of the home groups I was in. It was a great question. Because we know, we, if, right now, if I were to ask you Bible readers, give me a couple examples of Sarah's submission, you would come up, I know, with a couple. You would come up with, wow, that was a hard thing her husband asked her to do. <laughs> to say you're my sister. Become, go into the harem of the Pharaoh and then to do it again with the other king later on. How come Peter doesn't use that? He doesn't. Maybe there was a problem with Abraham's decision there, and his sin there, etc. But he, but he does, he does not say Sarah obeyed Abraham, so just follow whatever he says to do. He used this obscure passage in Genesis 18, verse 12, calling him Lord. It's the only time. And in that passage, she's essentially we're supposed to understand. In the tent alone. And she, she overhears the angels speaking to Abraham. She's going to be pregnant. And she laughs in unbelief. And says, Shall I and have a baby? And my Lord, who is old? That's it. Well, I think what he's doing is, he grabs that. Instead of this actual obedience to do this really hard thing, say, I'm his sister, and you end up in the harem. Because it said something. No one's looking. She addressed her husband with that respect of his role, his responsibility, his title. Sir, Lord. That's at the heart of submission. Which means, again, therefore, a wife should never give in to just any and every demand of her husband. So, in other words, from the text, I think we can safely assume this in what Peter says. If her husband says to her, stop being a Christian, Peter does not mean submit and obey him and stop being a Christian. Simple. If he says, I need you to steal, I need you to lie. 
I need you to do something else that is clearly contrary to God's moral law revealed in Scripture. She must say with a submissive heart, I wish you wouldn't ask me that because I can't. My conscience before my Lord and my Savior won't let me do that. Dear husband, I plead with you to, to rethink. I must first give allegiance to Him. I want to be submissive in every way that I can, but when you tell me to contradict my Lord, I cannot do that. I'm not reading into this text. See, Peter doesn't just address these Christian wives right here in verses 1-6 to of chapter 3. He did a few sentences earlier. See it in verse 12 of chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, means unbelievers, honorable, so that when unbelievers speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So they have this command and he addresses women, women and he says, how you live, decisions you make in your conduct, let it come out of a fear of God and let it be pure. Which has these sexual pure roots to it. Which means, when Peter says submit, and Sarah is an example of submission, she obeyed her husband, it means within these moral parameters that are given in Scripture. Just what it means in its context. And as we've seen elsewhere, obey the state, yeah. It will. The Hebrew women in Moses' time when he was a baby who were supposed to kill baby boys, they refused to obey the law. And they were praised for it. Daniel refused to obey the law. That says you're not allowed to pray to your God for, what is it, three months? Well, he said, nope, that one I can't do. But overall, he was a very submissive and a person who worked in the government. Okay. In the New Testament, apostles, they respected authority, but now you're telling us to stop preaching? In the name of Jesus in Jerusalem? We can't do that. Because God has told us to do that. And the same thing, wives, you're hearing it clearly from this pulpit. Be submissive. Cultivate this. But never are you to be or to submit to demands that are clearly outside the bounds of morality in Scripture. Okay. Submission is not at all based upon intelligence or competence. The reason, as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, that there are roles in marriage rooted in masculinity and femininity are rooted merely in masculinity and femininity. Not implying at all that the husband is smarter. Or wiser. He may be in some areas. And she may be in other areas. But not, 
That, that, that's not the point. In this text, which partner, the believing wife or the unbelieving husband, who, who is smarter spiritually? The woman, by definition. This has nothing to do with competence and development of mind and thought. Okay. Submission is not. This is a huge one. Because this is the word that is in our culture at large and it is a word that will come up when you read evangelical feminist literature. Equality. Biblical submission in all its realms, including marriage, is not inconsistent with equality with Christ. The reason I say it, because you will hear evangelical feminists say that this idea of roles, submission, and authority means inequality. And that's just a word play, really. Define your terms. It, which you, we really need to do. And there are different senses of equality. As I argued last week, God created humanity, male and female, in His image. Their men and women are absolutely equal in the image of God, in honor before God, in value before God, in importance before God, in personhood before God. But that does not imply necessarily that they are the same in their nature, or their roles, or in this particular situation, in authority as opposed to submission. The egalitarian, the, the evangelical feminist error is to constantly blur the distinctions and to assume that being equal in the image of God and value and personhood, etc., means that they must be equal or the same in roles. But real, life's not that way, is it? Who, who's heard of Tim Tebow? Two people? What kind of church is this? Golly. One of the most celebrated college football players in the history of college football. Extremely important for those four years for his football team, the University of Florida. When they won two national championships, he won the Heisman Trophy. He's just graduated this year. Very important in value and honor. Who would argue that he is less valuable to that team than Urban Meyer, the head football coach at Florida? No one. Urban Meyer's valuable too. I don't think they would have won a national championship without getting him as their head coach. But who had the authority? Not Tim Tebow. His head coach had it all. If you understand sports, it's almost a godlike authority. I have authority to kick you off the team, to sit you, whatever. He was responsible for play calling if Tim Tebow played or not. But no one, because we understand the difference between this one has the authority in this dynamic called the football team, would assume that he must be more valuable as a person. Or even to the team. No, they're both 
Very valuable. But it's a whole different category. They have roles to play of submitting to your coach and of the coach having authority. This is true in all of life. Administration in a college, to the faculty in a college, to elders in a local church. There's nothing about the burden and the responsibility of elders in local churches that says anything about their worth, their value, and their personhood and being better than any member of that church. Period. We're talking about roles. The same thing is true with parents, with children. I mean, can you see someone seeing me with authority, over my children, disciplining them and assume, you arrogant son of a gun. You must think you're better than your children. You're superior than your children. You're more valuable. Why would you assume that? I have a responsibility. I have a God-given authority, depending on their ages, to raise them, to care for them, to protect them has nothing to do with inequality. We are not equal in role. My kids do not have authority over me, though they think they do at moments. They don't. Okay. All right. So the claim that if men and women have God-given roles in marriage, therefore there must be inequality, just does not follow from real human experience. And so wives in submission to their husbands is never ever to be taken to imply that the wife is inferior in personhood, spirituality, in Christ, in importance. When it comes to being equal in value, and equal in salvation, the Apostle Paul is crystal clear in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Greek. There is neither slave. Hear that? Submission. Master. Authority. There is neither slave nor free person. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal, spiritual strength from her husband. Now, for us men who are Christians and we have Christian wives, it's a good thing if we grow in feeding, helping, being an encouragement, fellowshipping over Christ in the Word for our wives in encouragement. Because that's all part of the body of Christ. In a, in a marriage or within the local church. That's why fellowship, encouragement, it's not Lone Ranger stuff. And husbands, how much more for us in our families. But, Peter shows in this text that when spiritual leadership and nurturing is lacking for many of these women, they're not left without anywhere to go. He tells them where to go. Hope 
in God. He says, holy women develop this deep, strong, wise character of a gentle, internal disposition rooted in hope in God. She didn't get it from her husband. He's an unbeliever. In this text, she's getting it on behalf of her husband, hopefully, to win him. So, finally, let me just close then this week, the next six minutes. What's at the heart then of, of, of femininity? Submission. It is first not an action. It is first a disposition to follow the leadership of your husband. To follow his responsibility. His authority. It's an inclination first and foremost to respect that ominous responsibility that he has whether he's living it out or not. That's what Peter's getting at in this text when he addresses the inner quality of gentleness, of, of contentment in Christ of these women. That out of it comes this affirmation of her husband's authority or leadership. A woman, I think, and I, you know, most of you women will have to speak to this, but there's something within being a woman to the extent we, I think we grow in, they grow in pure femininity that loves it when and if we men act like men. There's something about him that says, I take great joy in submitting to you when you lead. And I don't like it when you are passive. And I feel like I gotta, I gotta lead to make this house and this family thing work. There's something about me that says I prefer not that. I don't like that. I'm gonna offer to you that have been very helpful to me. In the book, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, two very concise definitions of what's at the core of femininity and, and, then, and masculinity. Let's start with masculinity. And I think we'll go there more next week. Quote, At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead provide for and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, to receive, and to nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. So, let me 
just close by having gleaned from unpacking those definitions from the book Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mature femininity. It means sin has broken femininity. It has caused a perversion of femininity. And there's a mature route of femininity. Defined something like this. Quote, A woman in her femininity is responsive, compassionate, gentle, warm, tender, hospitable, receptive, supportive, intuitive, sensitive, emotionally vulnerable, obedient, not prudish, faithful. Just We only need focus. Negative traits. They're weak, become passive, slavish, weepy, seductive, flirtatious. I'm quoting the book. Chatterbox, silly, naive, moody, manipulative, nagging, pouty, smothering, spiteful. Grow in mature femininity. It's, like, it's, a, it's a freeing internal disposition. In quote, disposition is a better term than a set of behaviors or, or roles because mature femininity will express itself in so many different ways depending on the situation. Submission may take different forms depending on the quality of a husband's leadership. And finally, this femininity, quote, affirms, receives, and nurtures strength and leadership in worthy men. It means it affirms it because this biblical idea of masculinity and femininity and complementarity, she, at the core, likes it. Gets it. Says there's something natural in right about that. She receives this means that mature femininity feels natural and glad to accept the strength and the leadership of worthy Men. Let me just keep emphasizing that. Worthy men. She is really happy when her husband is not passive. And finally, she nurtures. Means that a mature woman senses a responsibility not merely to receive, but to nurture and strengthen the resources of masculinity. Let me close with the Apostle Peter. Hear the word of the Lord, wives and young women. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure 
chaste conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray that in this church, by the power, the indwelling, the infilling of Your Holy Spirit, You cause us men to be more worthy of feminine, joyful submission. That You cause a yearning in the women to lean upon You, to be strengthened in Your Word and by Your Spirit and in prayer. To beg of You to grow more and more in them. This internal precious beauty of a gentle and a quiet and a strong and a wise spirit. To the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ.